everyone. It's your host, Polly Siegel. And for anyone who doesn't know me, I'm a licensed clinical social worker, certified addiction specialist, and master level trained mindfulness practitioner. I own a counseling practice in both Colorado and Illinois, and I specialize in trauma, OCD, and anxiety. If you live in either of those two states, feel free to reach out to me for a consultation and we can begin the therapeutic journey together. Now on to the good shit. Welcome to season three of Shit Talking Shrinks. Gosh, I'm so excited. I will be featuring experts in the healing space and we're discussing a variety of mental health topics, the human experience, and society at large while creating levity along the way. Get ready to laugh, learn a lot, and change your life for good. This episode is sponsored by Joyous. Okay, I have to tell you about this incredible company, Joyous. It's an at-home ketamine treatment that delivers ketamine to your door for $129 a month, which is absolutely unheard of because most ketamine treatment is hella expensive. And what ketamine does is it helps our prefrontal cortex work more optimally. And the prefrontal cortex helps with decision-making, problem-solving, emotional regulation. It's the part of the brain that gets us through hard shit. And so if you're someone who has struggled with anxiety and depression and you've tried antidepressants or you've tried mood stabilizers and they haven't helped, ketamine is absolutely the next step. And I have seen my clients thrive while using ketamine. Joyous makes it super easy to access this life-changing medicine. And you can start the process by visiting www.joyous.team. You guys, you got to get on it and try it. Trust me, you won't look back. Hello, everyone. It is a Friday, although when you hear this, it will be Tuesday on your end. But I have a fabulous, fabulous guest, um, one that I've been counting down the nanoseconds to be able to chat with. Dr. Laura Ann Copley. She's a therapist, educator, speaker, and recently became the author to the book, Loving You is Hurting Me. And the work that you do is powerful in the trauma world. And I really am excited about this topic. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thanks for the plug on my new book. I'm so excited. It comes out October 10th. And it has been such a journey getting this information out in the way that I wanted to get it out. And I'm really excited about it coming out and being at all the local bookstores. And it's a really exciting time. So this is perfect timing to start talking about this topic, like trauma bonding, toxic relationships, all that fun stuff. Yeah, beautiful. Well, I know, you know, trauma has been a buzzword, a buzz topic for a very long time. And then we could probably break down trauma into so many different sections and subsections. For this episode, we're really talking about what is trauma bonding. It's a term that's used, especially on social media. And I want to get into the nitty gritty of it. So how would you define it for anyone who's confused? Yes. And so I come in from a little bit of a different perspective of trauma bonding than I think what is typically heard in pop psychology, where trauma bonding is this extreme, abusive dynamic between a victim and an abuser. And 100% those dynamics exist. 100%. I'm not here to take away from that. There's a lot of information out there already on those sorts of dynamics. And they are all needed. We need all those resources. And the people who are in those relationships absolutely can benefit from the, some of those books and some of those therapists and some of that information that's out there. In my work, and in my long-term work that I've done with complex trauma, 
and intergenerational trauma and attachment trauma, I have realized that trauma bonding is actually on this continuum where it's not so black and white, this or that. You're either in a trauma bonded dynamic or you're not. When we do that, we begin labeling these relationships as either good or bad and people as abuser or victim. So I come from the perspective that it is this spectrum where our early childhood experiences, our intergenerational trauma, the way we've learned to love and attach can put us somewhere along a mild, moderate, extreme variation of trauma bonding. The bottom line is it is a way in which we attach to People, our romantic partners really specifically is what adults are interested in, but a way that we're taught to attach to other people through fear instead of safety and love. We tend to be more urgent or thrashing or desperate for the relationship. We tend to fear the relationship if we're going to get abandoned, rejected, shamed. And we tend to keep sort of working for the relationship and fear that it's going to end bad or be bad or something bad's going to happen as opposed to feeling that sense of safety and groundedness and trust in ourselves and our partner. And when we frame it that way, we think like, oh, like there is more mild versions of this, mild and moderate versions of trauma bonding where people and couples can actually come in and do the work and actually form healthier, more intimate connections with each other instead of it being, oh my God, you're in an abusive relationship with a narcissist, you need to get out. You could view it in this extreme way because there are those cases, yet there's a lot of all of, you know, in between and the nuances of it. We have to be curious. What comes up for me in what you said is I would imagine that you can be bonded, have a trauma bond with a non-romantic partner. Absolutely. You can have trauma bonds with friends. You can have trauma bonds with your parents, siblings. And I work with all those sorts of dynamics. I tend to attract clients who are more interested in the romantic component of it. But you're absolutely right. It can come in a lot of different relationships too. So one would think if a relationship is rooted through fear or just the worry of rejection, abandonment, loss, why the heck are they in it? Well, fear can be very intoxicating. Fear adds this urgency and desperation to a dynamic that can when we are in it and when we feel it, it can have that sort of codependent, you know, at times that tumultuous, stormy slash delicious toxicity to it. And when we are raised in environments or have continual relationships that have this sort of lack of safety, but you continuously earn the person back, um, you have this sort of intermittent reinforcement of the relationship being okay, followed by it being bad when you have that. And that's how you're wired it's really easy to confuse love and trauma bonding. So in a way, it feels good. Well, and it sounds like because of childhood and attachment injuries, that type of conditioning and programming in the brain becomes quite familiar. And what I know as a clinician is the brain goes to familiar. It doesn't always go to what's safe. Familiar and safety are two separate entities. And so it might not logically make sense, but the body and the mind are are yearning for what it knows. Absolutely. And then so you're yearning for what it knows because that is what's familiar, like you said. But then with this intermittent pattern of reinforcement and these cravings and cues and response and reward dynamic that we get from earning our partner back after a fight, that continued rupture and repair cycle, we get these delicious chemicals released in our brain too. 
like dopamine and endorphins that happen throughout the relationship that keeps the relationship on this like tumultuous, intoxicating high. Whereas these safer relationships that we're ultimately trying to work for, there's an ease to it. There's a peacefulness to it. There's a groundedness and a sense of home and steadiness. And when you are raised in environments or you're in a pattern of attracting relationships that has this bit of tumultuousness to it, sometimes in the healing process, it can feel boring to get in a quote unquote safe relationship. And so we're trying to actually rewire the body to experience safety as you know something that you deserve and something that is healthy and something that creates the foundation where you can explore new things and add excitement in that kind of way. But in the beginning, some people who have really dysfunctional upbringings and a dysfunctional childhood, they might code these safe, trusting relationships as boring. And that's another reason we attract the other kind. And I would imagine if it's boring and there isn't the highs and the lows, that that can feel not right. Like there's sort of like this feeling internally of like, this isn't right because I'm so used to being, you know, on cloud nine and then down in the dumps and I'm not experiencing that. Absolutely. And so we'll either think that, oh, something's wrong with somebody else. Like they're not doing something for me. Or people will think, when is the ball going to drop? This is too good to be true. Something is going to happen. And that fear either creates this self-fulfilling prophecy because we're not actually connecting to our partner in a place of trust and our partner picks up on that. Or we start to self-sabotage too. Something that is important to me is, you know, there's a lot of books out there where the other person is the toxic one. The reader is the victim and it empowers the victim to get out of the abusive relationship or to get away from their abuser. I want those books out there. I need those books out there. They are fantastic. However, I want people who come from these dysfunctional families and have had these dysfunctional relationships to also know it is possible for them, for them to also heal that and heal possibly what is quote unquote toxic about them um, instead of them feeling like they're being labeled and shamed by the psychology community. So I want them in my office and I want to help them learn, well, what has been ingrained in you? What sort of attachment injuries do you have that's making you quote unquote toxic in your relationship so that we can actually heal it? And you know, it doesn't mean that you're crazy or a narcissist. It might mean that you have attachment trauma that's been overlooked. Would you say that if you have a pattern or a history of getting into relationships where trauma bonding happens, that that's probably a pretty good sign that there's an attachment injury? I would say that is probably one of the strongest telltale signs that there's an attachment injury. And I want to be fair not to, you say, this is 100% guaranteed. That is typical of what we see. And I just want to define for listeners who are like, what is an attachment injury or an attachment wound? Because we're using clinical jargon here. You know, really, whoever was your caregiver, that could be mom, dad, grandma, someone even unrelated by blood, who, as they were raising you, your needs weren't being met. And it doesn't necessarily mean physical needs or, you know, you weren't provided food. Like people go to the extreme. And I want to bring it back to sort of what happens even in small ways of just not having the emotional attunement. Like that caregiver wasn't able to hold space for your emotions. They weren't able to hold space for what you in a moment were craving and desiring and needing. And that is just as harmful as some of the bigger T's that we see. 
It can even be done from well-meaning parents and their own intergenerational patterns that they've inherited from their childhood and their you know, grandparents' childhood and so on and so on. There are these patterns that get passed down. We fall into roles. And in my book, Loving You is Hurting Me, I've actually mapped out some of those childhood parts, these burdened, wounded inner children that we might fall into because some of them are actually like the golden child. And you think, well, like the golden child had it all. Like, how could that possibly be a trauma? Well, you know, try living as the golden child where you had to be absolutely everything. And if you weren't, you were a failure to your family. And it was your responsibility to make your parents happy and okay, because they had nothing else to fall on to keep themselves happy except you. It's not just, you know, the scapegoat where a parent, you know, blames a child, there's a problem child, there's an obvious kid that's the quote unquote bad kid. No, like we have so many other forms of being a wounded inner child that can start leading to how we show up in our adult relationships. So, you know, if we had to be, I have another archetype of a wounded inner child called the hero, which I was in my family. And that hero is somebody, if you come from a family system where both parents have so much unfinished business that they rely on you to almost like re-promote them and save them from their unfinished business of their past, you know, you have to be you know, the A student and on homecoming court and, you know, be a cheerleader or a football player or like whatever, like you have to be the thing that saves them. And that can lead to a type of attachment trauma too, that then spills over into our adult relationship. So then do you feel like you have to save your romantic relationships or save your partner? Do you attract partners like that? And it's so interesting that you share this. I swear, sometimes the world works in mysterious ways or the universe does. I had a session earlier this week and it's a client I've worked with for a while. And, you know, she started dating this new person and she's like, he's just so normal. Like there isn't anything for me to do to help. And it was like this intense discomfort around like, well, then what's my use if I'm not stepping in to help him, to save him, to fix him, to correct him, to enhance him? And it makes me think of this hero archetype that you just shared. Absolutely. Yeah. And then the whole not even entertaining the possibility that for once, she might be able to also be taken care of in a relationship because she's attracted a healthy partner. Like heaven forbid, there might be somebody out there that could actually make space for her instead of her having to fix everything. Like it's not even something that might be on her radar as a possibility. And then like, how do we help her learn that it is okay to take up space in that sort of way and to let other people show up for her? Sure. And that it's not indicative of something being wrong or bland, right? Because that's how her brain was registering it is like, this must not be right for me because like, I just don't feel that intensity that's so yummy. Yeah, exactly. And then like later on in our work, after they've sort of become a bit more trusting of a relationship and have wired in their body what safety feels like, safety is not coded as boring. After we worked on that, we can start bringing in, well, it's the foundation of a safe relationship that's going to let this relationship take risks and try new things and explore and get that yumminess, get those endorphins and dopamine in a partnership, like two people doing it together, instead of there being an issue within the relationship, it's you all exploring life and novelty together. 
And it's bringing some of us Sarah Perel's work with that sense of safety versus novelty. And that really rich relationships has a mixture of both, but it needs to have that foundation of safety first before we bring in the yumminess of novelty and growth and evolving and and risk-taking and trying new things. But that yumminess is still possible. We just learn how to do it in a way where it maintains the alliance as opposed to something that is about continuously rupturing and repairing the relationship. I want to take a quick pause to talk about our sponsor, a company called BetterHelp. It's an online therapy platform where all the therapists are licensed and accredited professionals. It's affordable. You pay a low flat fee for therapy with your therapist, and it's convenient. Do it at your own time and at your own pace, and you can communicate with your therapist as much as you want and whenever you feel is needed. And more importantly, it's effective. Thousands of people have benefited from therapy using BetterHelp, and we're really grateful to offer all of our listeners 10% off your first month. So if you're interested in receiving therapy ASAP, click the link in our show notes and you can get started and you get to save money. How would you say you typically see the dynamics in trauma bonding? Like if someone's curious around like, what are the different types of trauma bonding or what are the different dynamics that are common? In my book, I actually walk uh, the reader through how to map out their own, what I call the toxic hook. And it is your own unique dance and your unique pattern, how we are triggering each other along a cycle that ends up being the self-fulfilling prophecy. But to simplify it in the time that we have, I really pull a lot from Sue Johnson's work and emotion-focused therapy for couples as a foundation on how to make your own toxic hook visual and to track your own unique pattern. But we tend to have some sort of variation of a pursuer that is really trying to chase their partner, really trying to chase the problem, really getting after it. Like we need to talk about it now. They tend to have more of an attacking, criticizing dynamic to them. And then there's also a withdrawer, which is somebody who tends to shut down and get flooded easily and withdraw and stonewall their partner. We can bebop back and forth between those two types of patterns. So we can both be withdrawers at the same time. We can both be pursuers at the same time. One can be a pursuer and one can be a withdrawer. But what we need to do is recognize when we are in that role as we are trying to handle a conflict. So if we're coming at our partner, making our partner the enemy with critical language and blaming language and accusatory language... How is that triggering our partner's defense mechanism? Are they coming back at us and finger pointing back and scorekeeping? Because that's a toxic dynamic. Are they getting defensive and shutting down and, you know, going into themselves because they feel flooded and overwhelmed by the dynamic? And so then that triggers you because you're feeling like, oh, he's abandoning me. He's leaving me. And so we chase more. We have dynamics that we take on these roles. So what I would look for, and Gottman says, to look for criticism and defensiveness. So look for accusation and withdrawing and stonewalling. Look for ways in which that is what you are doing as you're trying to resolve conflict, because that typically means that you are falling into a dynamic that indicates a somewhere on the spectrum some of our attachment traumas coming out. Again, this does not mean you are in in an abusive relationship. At least I wouldn't use that word for it. I know a lot of people say, well, toxic means abuse, but we have to find 
the right language to use here. It could mean like, I've gotten critical of my partner before. I've gotten defensive. We all do. But it does mean that we're falling into dynamics where old patterns are showing up. And the more extreme they get, the more we're falling on that trauma bond spectrum. Okay. So it wouldn't be fair to say that if you from time to time get defensive, then you're trauma bonded. If you give defensive from time to time, does it make you human? And do we all have an essence of somewhere in our past having an attachment wound or attachment injury happening and that's playing out? Certainly. like That's the human experience. So we're talking chronically. Like if someone's chronically and fiercely... Yes. If it is your continuous go-to and it's coming full force because you are getting triggered by your partner. And this is where I try to become really clear on the trauma bond work that I do has five criteria. If you are responding from one of these places, more than likely you fall on the trauma bonded spectrum. There was an attachment wound that shaped you. We can have more than one of these. They are, I was abandoned by somebody that I loved and that loved me, at least I thought so, and that person left. Betrayal is another one. So we have a betrayal wound. Somebody that I loved did something to harm me. There was a brokenness of trust by somebody and that betrayal completely changed the course of my life. Humiliation. I was made fun of by a group or by a person that I really wanted to belong to. Injustice. I was raised in an environment culturally or within my family or school that I continuously felt powerless because something was unfair and I was the person that always had to experience the loss or the unfairness or the injustice. And then finally, the fifth one is rejection. So rejection is different from abandonment. People get them confused. But rejection is that sense of, I was dismissed and discarded before I was even given a chance to be accepted. Whereas abandonment was, you had the relationship and lost it. Rejection is, you're not even worth trying for. So the trauma bonding that I work with looks at trauma bonding through those lens. And if we are reacting from, oh my God, like my partner is going to abandon me and that's why he's shutting down. That's why he's going cold. That's why like that sort of thing. Then we are reacting from that fear of abandonment. We don't want it to happen. So we chase. Or if we shut down, you know, if we're one of those that withdraw and shut down, maybe we have an attachment wound of humiliation. We were made fun of a lot growing up. We were bullied a lot. Our parents made fun of us. We were like always the butt of the joke or something like that. And so we just become really quiet and reserved and withdrawn to minimize the likelihood of somebody picking on us. And that might not even be in the family, but that could also just be bullying at school and feeling social rejection. Absolutely. And so the trauma bonding that I work with is I try to see if some of these imprints Does it feel familiar to a time when you were younger, either in a prior relationship or in childhood, where you were abandoned, betrayed, humiliated, something was unfair, there was an injustice, or you were rejected somehow? Okay, so historically, now I've done a lot, a lot of inner healing, so it's different now. But I will say, I still find myself liking the shininess of what I'm about to describe. I don't allow myself to do it anymore, but it's still shiny. Okay. So historically, I would, especially in my 20s, seek out men who were, you know, 
cold and distant and aloof and unpredictable. And sometimes it was hot and really, really nourishing. And other times I was confused and super anxious around like, did I do something wrong? Is this going to end? What's going to happen? And so using your framework that you just shared, how would you describe that? Well, if I were working with you, I would eventually, and this might not be session one or even session two, but I would eventually get to at what point in your life did you feel as though that sense of wanting to be chosen by your partner, that sense of if I worked hard enough to the point that I was chosen, is there anywhere else in your life that that has felt familiar? Is there anywhere else in your life where you felt that you had to work for love? Absolutely. And then we would tie that, right? So the reason that those kinds of relationships where they're a bit more cold and detached and you have to work for them, and then when you earn them, it is this just overwhelming, yummy, delicious, intoxicating feeling because you did it. You know, like I am worthy of love. Like I finally was chosen and I worked for it and I earned it. It is, it can give us so much dopamine and endorphins and oxytocin and it feels so good in that sort of intoxicating way. But when we actually read down deep, deep underneath it into the subconscious, what that kind of relationship implies is there's a little girl in that dynamic that thinks she is not worthy of love inherently, that she has to go above and beyond to earn somebody's love that should have been given unconditionally. That somewhere there was some sort of transaction of if I'm this for you, will you give me this in return? And I would say for me, a lot of the ways that I achieved love growing up was through performance and achievement and doing and getting recognition and success. And so I find myself like just mission oriented if like I keep pursuing and I keep leaning in and I keep showing how like awesome and cool and funny and amazing I am, which by the way, I am all those things and I do believe that. But that should be given to me without me needing to work so hard. Again, I can like even hear like I have done so much work. And so you know, as you said, like I am those things, but you're not those things because of how much you excel. You are those things inherently. And because you are those things inherently, that gives you the motivation to just be like a life seeker. Whereas if we're taught that we have to do those things in order to be brilliant, lovely, worthy, then we continuously think that we are somehow without until we earn it. I hear you. You were like, I have now been able in my own healing to recognize that I'm those things inherently. And you know, you might always will be somebody that's just thirsty for life. But that's coming now from more of an organic place instead of a fear place. Well, and also what's so interesting, and I hope for listeners just using me as, you know, creates the humanness and the connectedness that we all, even as clinicians, have dysfunction that lives within us that we have to create inner peace with. I still find myself as a single woman, you know, when it becomes too available for me, right? Like when a guy shows up and there's no cat and mouse, right? My nervous system is like, eh, meh, I don't know, maybe I don't, we'll see, right? But the minute he doesn't call when he's going to call or he doesn't text when he says he's going to text or he cancels plans, my nervous system's like, ooh, okay, go into like graspy mode. It's just fascinating. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. And I think uh, like step one is having that insight. 
I understand that. I think, like you said, there's always something that just, even if all the work that we do, because we are raised in a certain sort of way, or if we learn something like that might always be like a little voice in there. And I'm not saying that healing means you are 100%, you know, have found somehow to just be absent of every little attachment trauma that you've ever been through. That's not what healing actually is. Healing is your ability. I have these tendencies, but I have a wise mind enough, a maturity where I am able to recognize what is good for me and what is not good for me. It's okay to like be able to like take care of that part and recognize I know this is still really yummy and shiny and sparkly and I like that sparkly thing over there, but ultimately I don't want to be wasting five years of my life in a place where that might not be going anywhere. And I think for listeners, please hear us. Progress is not linear. It's not like you keep going straight and then you never retreat or you never regress or you never go back to old patterns. Like remember, neuroplasticity and neural pathways are strong and powerful. And so being able to, in a moment, go, oh, I can feel my tendency to want to seek out something that's familiar. And I know that familiarity causes me harm and causes suffering. And I'm going to make a different choice. I want to segue into tangible tools. If listeners could walk away and really digest everything we've said, as well as start to implement some techniques to address trauma bonding, if you or a loved one or a friend might be in one. Where do they start? One of the big things for me is we've already started. This is a really good segue because we left off talking about insight and insight and that sense of I know myself and I can validate myself. It's about that question like, why do I do what I do? If we're over here being thinking that, you know, we're broken or flawed or crazy, toxic and all these things, that comes with this very shaming mentality. But the reality is more than likely, you're a trauma survivor. You're an attachment trauma survivor to one extreme or another. And it makes sense why you have learned to do what you do. So I think one of the first things is to soften how you treat yourself from that place of just self-validation. It explains it. It doesn't excuse it. But it explains, oh, this is why I feel what I feel. And then what we were getting into is that mantra. I even keep telling myself, I can do hard things. Something feels familiar. That familiar thing has led me to falling into patterns that I'm not really proud of, but I can do hard things. Just because I feel a certain way doesn't mean I can't do something different. And so when I feel that tendency to go into that critical accusatory place, or when I feel that tendency to go to that stonewalling, cold, detached place, that's okay. You're allowed to feel that way. What are you going to do differently? And that mantra, I can do hard things, gives you permission to say, I'm allowed to feel something, but do something healthier as a response. Right. And to be able, you know, in the moment to have the awareness and mindfulness between stimulus and response, that space is so, it's a superpower of like, ooh, I want to do X, but I know that choosing Y is so connected to my health, wellness, vitality. Absolutely. And so what I would actually do as like a a little homework assignment is write out alternative things that you can do the next time you are triggered to do the old trauma pattern. So for example, if you are triggered and you're going into a critical thrashing chasing dynamic, instead of 
doing that, I will choose to take 10 breaths, ask my partner for some space to collect my thoughts. I will recite my mantra, pick one that brings you a sense of groundedness. If you stonewall and detach and grow cold, what are three to five things that you can do instead of that? I need to ask my partner like for a pause so that I can speak more clearly. I need to gather my thoughts. I need to sit down and hold her hand because I need to feel connected and like she's there with me. So what I would do is, what are some actual things? And write them down as like a homework assignment. Write those things down. And then what happens is the next time you're able to do Y instead of X, we have something that we call a corrective experience. And a corrective experience is for so long, I was doing something in this problematic, dysfunctional way, but the same trigger happened and I was able to do it in a different way. And all of a sudden, my neuroplasticity is like, boom, we did something different. My brain is growing. My life is evolving. Like all of a sudden, you did something different and you've broken, you've shown yourself, you've proven to yourself and your partner and the relationship, we can do different things. And that is huge for a relationship to witness that together. Yeah, absolutely. And if someone wanted a bonus tip, I know I'm putting you on the spot, but what's your bonus tip? There is a website and it's a research through uh, positive psychology. It's called the VIA Institute for Character Strength, I believe, something like that, or uh, the VIA Institute of Character. And what you can actually do is you can take a quiz and it breaks down your unique character strengths. There's 24 of them like appreciation for beauty, gratitude, creativity, humor, love of learning. But what's really cool about that is you get to learn what your own resources are. And so what I love about just this little tip, just this little thing that you can do in the meantime is when you find out kind of what your top three to five character strengths are, you can actually think, okay, how can I bring these things into my life and into my relationships consciously and intentionally? And so when I'm in problematic situations, how can I bring humor into this situation? How can I bring gratitude into this situation if you're ranking high on those things? And so it's a way to start opening your mind and that neuroplasticity and those opportunities for corrective experience. It's a helpful tool to have to start kind of guiding those prompts. I love it. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you. This conversation has been profound. I think it's applicable to all of us and we don't have to view trauma bonding in such an extreme, intense way. In fact, it probably shows up in a lot of our relationships from time to time and moments to moments. And so if you like this episode, go ahead and share it with the people that you think would enjoy it and we'll catch everyone later. 